hyper card. What is it? It's not hyper. It's not even a card. It's not quite system software. It's not quite application software. You don't think hypercard might be a, a fad? No, I absolutely think hypercard is going to revolutionize uh, the way computing is done and possibly even the way human thought is done. Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Macworld Magazine, February 1988. The Iconoclast by Stephen Levy. Meditations on Hypercard. The problem with Hypercard isn't Hypercard, it's what people are saying about it. What is it about Hypercard that clouds people's minds? Has its developer, Bill Atkinson, concocted some ingenious, mind bending ray triggered when his code is fed into a Macintosh? I suspect so, because when people first see Hypercard, the program that defies category, they respond with near-hysterical enthusiasm. It's reminiscent of how experimenters reacted to ingesting LSD in 1957. In other words, you have no analog for the experience. You're not sure how to handle it, but all of a sudden, you're seeing God. In no time, you're babbling about how the world is about to undergo a profound transformation as a result of this wonderful substance. And the next few weeks are intense times of personal experimentation and energetic evangelizing. This, you croon, awash in visions of hyperbuttons and stockpiles of stackware, is it. I do not exempt myself from this rush of enthusiasm. Though I had heard noises about this wonderful new program, I was unprepared for Bill Atkinson's mind-blowing demo at the August Macworld Expo. In retrospect, I may rationalize why I was grabbing people by the collar and saying, this is the greatest Macintosh thing since the Macintosh. For one thing, I was waiting for something thrilling. There has to be more to life, I figured, than waiting for WordPerfect to ship. For another, Mr. Atkinson's programming virtuosity easily surpasses anything available since, well, Mac Paint. The sheer speed with which his program whizzes through images and seeks out selected words is nothing short of astounding. I've come across a lot of new algorithms in the development of HyperCard that have allowed it to achieve the performance that I insist upon. I've worked out some ways to speed up searching. I've worked out some ways to pack bitmaps. I've worked out in a lot of different algorithms to make HyperCard have acceptable performance on, on the Macintosh. Uh, Apple does regard those algorithms as proprietary to Apple. These the patent applications discuss how they work. I have 12 patents from stuff I invented for HyperCard over the three years that I worked on it. And anywhere it was possible to insert a neat feature, a neat feature exists. There are more goodies in here than in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Atkinson really seems to have placed the complex capabilities of the Macintosh in the hands of non-programmers. With the mini-programming language HyperTalk, it seems that the rankest novice, with a little bit of tinkering, can devise a terrific application. Having once written a book lauding how the computer revolution conveyed to the masses the hacker's ability to change one's electronic environment, it is no wonder I swooned when I first saw HyperCard. I did not go as far as some other communicants, though. Previous commitments prevented me from dropping out of society to create stackware. 
Nor did I proclaim, as did John Scully, Apple's leader, that HyperCard, quote, shatters the barrier between a person's information-handling dream and its realization. That, considering the nature of dreams, is very heady stuff. Scully and many others here have fallen into a fallacy reflected by the misleading moniker of HyperCard, that the program signals the arrival of hypermedia, a tonic that will change the world by changing the way we deal with information. Just as some early LSD users thought the chemical would transform the world, some hypercard mavens chorus with visionary fervor that the program ushers in this strange thing called hypermedia, which links all relevant information so the world's knowledge falls into place as easily as the click of a mouse. I'm more skeptical and hereby urge that the rhetoric be toned down so that HyperCard can find its rightful place as a useful, if mortal, program and not have to bear the burden of a paradigm shifter. Hands-on HyperCard By now, most of you have probably had some hands-on experience with the program, which is free to all new Mac owners and only $50 to everybody else. Probably the first thing you learned was that your current memory was insufficient to deal with the program. While HyperCard runs with a megabyte of internal memory, another megabyte or so is required to run the program in sync with other programs, and only that mode provides the full benefit of HyperCard. But Steve, you ask, just what is that benefit? Fair question. I haven't really said what the program does yet, and for good reason. In Hollywood, the dealmakers debate movie proposals in terms of whether they are high concept. A high concept idea is one that its proponent can easily describe in one sentence, preferably in a single clause. The higher the concept, the greater the likelihood that the project will eventually become a major motion picture. By that standard, HyperCard would never make it to treatment. Apple's own marketing has been vague, muttering about the power of association and promising all sorts of wonders. One of the problems that Apple had, they, they sort of like didn't want to tell people this is programming for the rest of us. One of their marketing campaigns was HyperCard, but what is it? Yeah, I thought that was pretty lame. <laughs> and another one had a button that had a fire hydrant and a dog peeing on it in yellow ink where the dog was peeing. And it, and it said, HyperCard, freedom to associate. And I wasn't really very happy with how Apple presented it to people because they didn't quite get that normal people really could make their own software. In fact, it would be better for all concerned if people called it a user configurable information handling tool and left it at that. It is much more, of course, but when you start to explain the much more, your eyes take on that Timothy Leary gleam. At its simplest, and also at its best, HyperCard manages information. The program's superiority to other data management software is its recognition that information has more value if it can be manipulated into a larger universe than that of a single program. So while Helix and Fourth Dimension have more power and depth in some respects, HyperCard, in its ability to link with the outside world, is like the mouse that trips up the elephant. To use HyperCard, of course, you need stackware. 
HyperCard without stackware is like Macintosh without software. The sample stacks included in the package lose their novel appeal very rapidly, and if you really want to play, you must buy or download new stacks or write your own. In my case, which I guess is typical, I first tried to modify some of the freebie stacks. I started with the address stack and began playing around, designing my own custom cards with links to other stacks and programs. One quibble here. While Atkinson is an original Macintosh wizard, oddly enough, the workings of HyperCard in some ways vary from the standard religion. The program opens to the home card, which displays icons representing your tried and true stacks. This is akin to the desktop that greets you as you first start up the Macintosh. However, while we've all gotten used to opening Macintosh files by double-clicking on them, in HyperCard it takes a single click. MFR clarification. I think he's confusing files and applications versus buttons here. Files and applications in the Finder do indeed require two clicks to open, but buttons have only ever required one click. If you don't believe me, here is Bill Atkinson himself fielding the same question at a user group meeting. It's about someone complaining about how if you press on a button, it works immediately rather than a double press. Well, let's take that one for example. Do you know any buttons on Macintosh that you have to double click? No, good point. And there's no save command in HyperCard. The program automatically does that. While arguably a better way to do things, certainly a step towards idiot proofing, it does get confusing since HyperCard exists side by side with the traditional interface. If you have a piece of paper and you write on it, those changes are there. It doesn't go away. This, this I've been editing for three hours and now I did something and the computer crashed and I lost three hours worth of work. That was you know, really unacceptable. I was a proponent of, as you're making changes, you're writing a little trickle to the hard drive so that if at any point you lose memory or you lose power, it's all there. And the first time that I got that in was with HyperCard. And that was because I could have stacks that had a million cards that no way would fit in memory of this little teeny computer. So in order to work on one, you had to be editing it in place on the disk. And I always made it so that every edit was done uh, such that you could pull the power plug and anything up to the last few seconds would all, all be safely on the disk. Talkin' HyperTalk Blues That's a small complaint. The bigger problem I had was figuring out how to get the information in my current electronic Rolodex, the Mac Dialer desk accessory from Borland's Sidekick package, into the address stack in HyperCard. Sitting in the press room at the Macworld Expo, I had watched Ted Kaler, an Apple software engineer who worked on HyperCard, hack up a simple script, a HyperTalk program that controls a button, to import information from a database to a stack. Kaler had no trouble doing this. He is a veteran wizard who earned his stripes at the famed Xerox Park Laboratory, yet it still took him a few passes through the script to get it right. To duplicate his work, I would have to develop some prowess in HyperTalk and spend at least one afternoon of trial and error, eyes shifting from the screen to the tutorials in Danny Goodman's Complete HyperCard Handbook. An enjoyable afternoon, certainly, because I enjoy solving puzzles. On the other hand, it was a step toward a commitment. Did I really want to become a Macintosh programmer? 
It's useful to customize programs to individual needs, and I fully intended to acquaint myself with the workings of HyperCard enough to do that. But I did not want to immerse myself in HyperTalk. I have plenty of hobbies and didn't want to add software development to the list, so I decided not to write an importer script. I figured that someone else would do it, which is exactly what happened. Within two weeks, I found one in the new Stackware data library stored on the MOG section of CompuServe. It had bells and whistles and certainly did the job. But I wasn't quite happy with the graphic setup, so I didn't send in the $10 fee that the shareware programmer requested. A week after that, I noticed that there was yet another script available that did the same thing with better graphics. There is a lesson here. You don't have to plunge into programming HyperTalk to benefit from HyperCard. Since it is so easy to program, somebody else will do it for you. Ultimately, the stackware will determine how much HyperCard will become integrated into our work habits. One obvious use, as an all-round scheduler and personal data manager, has been addressed right off the bat. I've been noodling around with a pre-release version of the first full-blown stack of that sort, Activision's Focal Point, written by my Macworld colleague, Danny Goodman. The program does what I expect it to. Sadly, though, it lacks buttons that import data from other programs like, you guessed it, Sidekick. As I get more stacks and more skill in manipulating them, Focal Point may become the personal organizing tool I've been trying to kludge together for years. MFR Retrospective Focal Point was reviewed in Macworld April 1988. As you might expect from a large body of data-intensive HyperTalk code, the reviewer noted the suite's sluggishness and high memory requirements. Danny Goodman's website indicates Focal Point 2 shipped in 1989. Development seems to have stopped there. Hype and Hypermedia But the ultimate scheduler is not what the HyperCard visionaries are touting. Instead, they talk more about stacks on the model of Danny Goodman's other Activision program, Business Class, a hypermedia sampler of information on many countries, linked in various ways and easily accessible by world map graphics. It's tops for getting a quick answer to a question like, what time is it in Sri Lanka? But it doesn't provide the depth of information available in a dedicated guidebook. Business class suffers by comparison because it stands alone. In the coming age of hypermedia, the visionaries say, a program like business class will be part of a boggling network of connections. In its current version, when you ask what the intrapersonal customs are in a given country, business class gives you a few terse pointers. For instance, when in France, don't talk with your hands in your pockets. In the future, though, the hypermedia network will allegedly be in place. Asking the same question will link you to any French social bugaboo imaginable and provide the origins of those customs and perhaps a passage from Madame Bovary to show the custom in action. Anything ever written about French customs, or customs anywhere, or Flaubert, or the history of pockets will pop up on your screen. The information will be pumped into your home or office by an umbilical cord connecting you to some sort of giant world brain. There is a long line of adherence to this vision, 
beginning in 1945 with Vannevar Bush and continuing through Ted Nelson, who coined the word hypermedia. There has even been a Macintosh outpost in the field, Alan Boyd, the publisher of The Guide Hypertext System. In his book Odyssey, Apple Chairman Scully has picked up the torch. He calls his contribution Knowledge Navigator, an intriguing, intelligent tool that will enable us to race through civilization's accumulated knowledge like supersonic pilots blasting through the stratosphere. Scully also writes of his belief that Hypercard and its descendants will free us from the, quote, constraints of a book's linear format. Linking information, the way you think, in many cases, will obviate the tiresome convention of beginning, middle, and end. Our fiction may begin to resemble novels like Hopscotch by the South American writer Julio Cortazar. The Nobel laureate claimed the 155 chapters of his book could be read in any of several different sequences. In the hypermedia world, nonfiction books would not be read front to back, but would be blended into some world information bank, each passage linked in millions of ways to other relevant information. To quote Scully, using this model enables the user to summon up any information he needs in the dosage he requires. This strikes me as an unlikely scenario, at least on the scale that some commentators have predicted. An enormous task stands in the way of realizing the hypermedia dream. All the world's knowledge must be entered as data and put online. The problems of copyright and fair use must also be dealt with, and that means a near-infinite number of lawyer hours. In a world where too many people are unfed and homeless, our space program is dead in the water, corporations are lean and mean, and every spare penny goes for tools of destruction, it is difficult to imagine this multi-billion dollar project ever getting underway. What's more, I do not mourn the loss. For raw data gathering, the hypermedia dream would indeed be a boon. But when it comes to dealing with ideas, I wonder about the jet pilot metaphor of racing through information. Sometimes it's better to walk. At that slower pace, one can actually think about the information pouring in and not be so easily tempted to rush onto the next link. When push comes to shove, I prefer reading to navigating. No doubt, fast ways to access information, in what might one day be known as the hypercard tradition, will change the way we do research and gain knowledge. But any changes in the near future will occur on a much more modest scale. For instance, computer filofaxes like Focal Point, or fast-searching front-ends for CD stored data, or interactive teaching aids like the help stacks for HyperCard itself. Meanwhile, let's not let the talk of information superhighways blur our vision of what is in front of us. A terrific program named HyperCard. It's here now, it's real, and we've all got a job ahead of us figuring out how to make the most of it. Thank you to Marco from France for writing in and requesting this article, which I somehow did not have scheduled. Thanks for keeping me on my toes, Marco. Stephen Levy mentions Bill Atkinson's jaw-dropping demo. Wouldn't it be great to be able to see that? I have a little treat for you, my tiny little pool of devoted listeners. That particular demo has not surfaced online, 
yet, but back in 2008, some kind soul uploaded something almost as good to Google Video. A meeting of the Apple Corps of Dallas from 1987 at which Bill Atkinson himself demonstrated HyperCard, followed by a question-and-answer session. Unfortunately, Google Video disappeared in 2011. Fortunately, I know something worth archiving when I see it, so I snagged a copy. Nobody has re-uploaded this gem anywhere, so I've gone ahead and done that just for you, dear listeners. If you go to macfolkloreradio.com extras, with an S, you'll find a link to the full video. Epilogue It's difficult to overstate just how accessible and empowering HyperCard was in its day. I've never been a very good programmer of any sort, but I still remember sitting in front of our Macintosh SE and working through the coil-bound tutorial that accompanied our copy of HyperCard 1.2.5. I was so excited. Your creations could take over the Macintosh screen and do whatever you pleased. I put together a few little stories and games, mostly poking fun at my sister, as you do when you're seven years old, and I built a videotape catalog for my sister and I. In school, I used HyperCard as a way to worm my way out of boring projects for which I had no flair or patience. Dioramas? Clay models? You gotta be kidding me! A friend and I teamed up to create an interactive science quiz and a miniature adventure game that walked you through a castle of old, complete with music, background ambience, and sound effects, all in black and white. Not too impressive in 1996, but we made them as lively as we could. And now a word from Bill Atkinson himself at Macworld Expo, Boston 2004. I still use HyperCard all the time. My wife made this elaborate set of HyperCard stacks that does all the accounting and bookkeeping and inventory control for Bill Atkinson Photography Incorporated. We run it fine on Classic. That's the major reason we run Classic. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you, Bill, I, I was Googling you, and HyperCard was Googling always... Googling me, that's now a verb. Yeah. <laughs> what does it feel like yeah. when you get Googled? <laughs> Did you wash your hands afterwards? <laughs> Here's a one interview in 1987, where you said HyperCard is going to open up the whole meaning of what personal computers can be. It's the original Macintosh dream of making the power of personal computers accessible to all of us. And then, here's a 2002 interview with you where you said, I've realized over time that I missed the mark with HyperCard. Mm -hmm. What changed? I missed the web. <laughs> HyperCard was the first web six years before Mosaic. There was the first web browser with cards, uh, stacks, links to other cards in stacks, buttons you could click and they do something, a human-readable scripting language we still don't have in Java. And, uh, <laughs> but... The thing that I missed, it was a chain to a hard drive. In 1992, version 2.2 of HyperCard finally added color support, though in the most slapdash way possible. It let you paste color images onto cards. However, text fields, buttons, and absolutely everything else remained black and white. I had a Macintosh 2SI at the time, a 20 MHz 68030, and performance went from sluggish to abysmal. It took a good three or four seconds to display even a medium-sized 8-bit color picture. So, what happened to HyperCard after 1992? The answer lies in a little tangent, if you'll indulge me. QuickTime 
We think of QuickTime as that video playback thing. Did you know that QuickTime version 3 through 7 contained a complete Macromedia Flash-like authoring environment? I didn't think so, but it's true. A timeline, sprites, effects, transitions, behaviors, buttons, multi-track audio, a scripting language, links to other movies, and movies embedded within other movies. Together, these interactive elements made up what were called Wired Movies. Not exactly a dynamite name in my books. Quote Wikipedia, The QuickTime Interactive Movie was to have been the playback format for the next generation of HyperCard authoring tool. Both the QuickTime Interactive and the HyperCard 3.0 projects were cancelled in order to concentrate engineering resources on streaming support for QuickTime 4.0. And so HyperCard 3 never shipped. To my knowledge, only three off-the-shelf applications ever exposed this functionality to end-users. The Apple Media Tool, Totally Hip Software's LiveStage Pro, and Tribeworks' iShell. By the turn of the century, Macromedia Flash had already eaten everyone's lunch, and HyperCard, as well as the Wired Movies code, had spent several years stagnating as Apple focused on more critical matters like not dying. And that's where the Apple part of the story ends. I don't have anything to tell you about the next 20 years. HyperCard as an official product simply died, despite what some people would have had you believe. Um, There's also been some rumors about us canceling HyperCard, which are totally bullshit. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Steve Jobs speaking unchallenged at Educause 1998. As Marco mentioned in his kind email, there has never been such a simple, widely accepted, powerful tool for people to express themselves. HTML was widely accepted, but was just a markup language and so wasn't as powerful. Web applications and JavaScript frameworks are extremely powerful, but not as simple. YouTube is just television. HyperCard left enough of a lasting impression on some people that I know of at least one educator who is still setting their students loose to create their own HyperCard stacks as recently as 2007. By then, of course, a Macintosh classic wasn't worth anything, so they were loaned to students without hesitation. Kids were thrilled that they were allowed to take home their very own computers to work on HyperCard stacks after hours. Some HyperCard clones emerged in the early 1990s, and they're still alive to varying degrees. Asymmetric's Toolbook for Windows, Spinnaker's Plus, and Silicon Beach Software's SuperCard, now distributed by Solutions Etc. Your podcast host has found a lot of comfort in dynamic languages with clear syntax like Python. But building graphical user interface applications is still a bear, as is bundling and shipping executables. There are interactive programming sandboxes aimed at kids, like Squeak and Scratch, and cross-platform runtimes like LiveCode that seem interesting but haven't gained a lot of momentum. And don't get me started on the garbage fire called modern JavaScript development. But even if the glory days of hands-on, create-your-own interactive multimedia are long gone, that doesn't stop you from grabbing an emulator, leafing through the tutorial stacks for HyperCard 2.0, remembering when technology promised to be a universal force for good, and playing with the train set stack just one more time. Thanks for listening. 
I welcome your podcast article requests, hypercard stories, and old Mac banter of any kind by email. Drop me a line at Derek, that's D-E-R-E-K, at MacFolkloreRadio.com. Thank you.